Podo. You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinson's.org.uk. Hello, we're back in the Notting Hill pub. We movers and shakers making a podcast about living with Parkinson's. I'm Mark Modell and this is an episode with a difference. This time we might be moaned at, laughed about, maybe laughed with. So with no further ado, who's here? Hello, I'm Liz Clark. Hello, I'm Mike Lacey-Solomon. Hello, I'm Julie Mayhew-Archer. Hello, I'm Joe Mardell. Yes, you might have gathered from that this week our partners, significant others, husbands and wives, whatever you want to call them, are here too. We've said so many times how hugely important the support of our partners is to us, so we thought we'd ask them along to get their side of the story, which may be uncomfortable, may be interesting. Who knows? Let's find out in a minute. There's a couple of notable absences from that uh, round the table. One, Jeremy's on holiday, so he can't be here. And secondly, Rory, your missus is missing. Yes, my missus departs for Cambridge at 5.30am on a Monday and doesn't come back till later in the week. So I've had to interview her, subject her to a vigorous interrogation over the weekend, and you'll be hearing the results of that later. And so we'll skip a second roll call, but just to make sure everybody else is here, aren't they? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yeah, we're here. That's enough now. Settle down. So let's go around the table and find out how you found out your partner was a parkie and how long you've been together. Okay, so um, I'm Nicholas's wife and he was diagnosed three years ago. That was when it was confirmed, although I think we probably suspected there was a problem before then. We've been together for 13 years, three of them with the Parkinson's. I'm married to Mark. You? (laughs) Yeah, that's you. You sure? (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, last time I looked, yeah. (laughs) And yes, we did suspect there was something going on, although I don't know how much Mark did. Before he was diagnosed, but there was certainly clueless. I always blamed it on Waitrose packaging. Yeah, but you had the stone face and the voice. Various people who knew you thought there was something going on. And I've been with Mark for 33 years. Julie? I married Paul Mayhew Archer in 1975 when we were students. Oh, yeah. Could have done with some guidance. <laughs> <laughs> And how, were you, how did you find out that he was... Well, looking back, of course, he used to do some weird things in the sense of he always used to look down at me like that, disapprovingly. Uh, yeah. yeah, we know that. <laughs> I used to say, I don't know why you're looking at me like that, because I haven't done anything wrong, but I could. And then later, at 58, he was diagnosed. And I'm 70 now. Yeah. And don't look a day over 69. <laughs> Mike? Well, Gillian and I have been together for 38 years, and Gillian was diagnosed 11 years ago, and she was 48, I was 49, and it came as a complete bolt out of the blue. We had no suspicion, no idea. Parkinson's was something we knew nothing about. No warning signs at all, at least none that we recognised. So what we're really interested in is the impact of, on your lives and how it's changed the relationship and so on. The old marriage ceremony has it in sickness and in health, better or worse. So how much has it changed your life and what's the worst bit? Honestly, when I 
was thinking about coming up to do this podcast, I realised that most of the time I try not to think about the Parkinson's because thinking about this podcast, I'm going to be very honest and Nicholas will be embarrassed, I felt quite tearful. And I realised that what we do day to day is make the best of it, which is seems to me the only thing to do. But actually, the diagnosis was a big shock. I was immediately in that mindset of thinking, he's going to be in a wheelchair within a year, big panic. How has it changed our relationship? The fundamentals aren't any different. We still try to enjoy life in every possible aspect. We have fun. But is there this thing that's always there, unspoken about, which is what might the future look like? Honestly, yes. And as I say, I find myself quite tearful this morning thinking about what this means. I think we have to be honest about that. And is there anything now that really changes your life? No, we are fortunate for the most part, Nicholas's tremor, but the only thing we have, and I know he's mentioned it on the podcast, he gets these extremely violent dreams, which again, we try to make a joke out of it. It's actually not very funny because he attacks me in the dreams and not that long ago, he he's a lot bigger than me. He was had his hands around my neck and was putting a lot of pressure on me and actually was pretty frightening. He doesn't know it's happened. We move past it, of course. That's the only aspect for me day to day, which frankly, in the scheme of things, listening to what I've listened to with everybody else, it's not a big deal. It's fine. And I normally just sleep out of the bed. But it's scary in the moment. And it's one of those things that it's, again, a sign that there's this thing going on that we don't really understand. When it happens, and it happens every three, four weeks maybe, I'm a light sleeper. I leap out of bed ordinarily and take myself away from the space that he can actually reach me and try to wake him. This was one of those stupid things. We were on holiday and boring point, but it was sheets rather than the duvet. So I actually couldn't get out of the bed. And I was trying to get out of the bed and kicking at the sheets. And Nicholas was had his hands around my neck. It's a difficult question, but does that change the way you think about him? Because he's, even though he doesn't know what he's doing, he's doing it to you. Do you know, in the moment, it's very hard because in the moment... My husband is screaming and shouting at me and physically attacking me. And the adrenaline goes and it is really frightening. And the aggression is very disconcerting. But the reality is, of course, I then process in the way we all do and say, OK, obviously he doesn't even know he's doing it. And we move past it and it's, it's fine. But it's, I know it's also upsetting for him when I tell him darling, this is what happened, that's upsetting for him. So as with all these things, you just find a way, we find a way to try to make light of it. Now, Mike, you've been with Gillian for a long time Mm. and you're always here at the pub when we come down. You manipulate her drugs or manipulate you, Mm. hand out the drugs. Mm. You're very important, obviously, to her, just in terms of being more than just a partner, being a carer. Yeah, it's a role that I um, I need to have because Gillian, although she's incredibly lively, everyone on the podcast would have heard how lively she is, is extremely vulnerable to low dopamine. When she goes off, she is completely incapable of movement. She can't speak. It's very, very distressing. And it can happen several times a day. My role from the moment we, we wake up, or at least I wake up, is to check if she took a a, a drug, because sometimes she forgets to do that. She wakes up before me often. And then I have to set my clock for the day, every two and a quarter hours, making sure that her levodopa is is given to her, come hell or high water. And I've learned the hard way, as has Gillian, that if I fail 
it's really dreadful. So I'm a carer, but we're doing just as much as we ever did. You know, we're really making sure we travel as much as we can, do as much as we can. And Mark, you asked about the worst thing that happens. The worst thing that happens is when Gillian wakes me up, which happens most mornings at about four to read me her latest bit of poetry, which I, I'm, I, I, I usually love. But, but, but then there's a secondary, it's like a secondary um, tremor from, you know, from an earthquake. When I do wake up properly, the first thing she says is, do you remember what I was reading to you three hours ago? And of course I never do, and she gets offended. So. And what's the best thing? I think we've always been very close, both as a family and as a couple, but this kind of relationship with needing to make sure she takes her drugs every two and a quarter hours actually often it's every hour because now when she eats she has to have a pill before eating otherwise she's incapacitated within an hour or so of eating what's the good thing of and all this we're just so close we really are we're together all the time and it works you know we just love being in each other's company so that's the good thing whereas i used to travel a lot for work i don't now i've you know changed the way i work and we're just together 24-7, and it works really well. Yeah, I was going to say, because you've got a very high-powered job, or you have had in the past. So, I mean, how do you manage to fit that in? Well, I'm very lucky in that the research that we're working on, which is a medical research, I'm not physically doing it with, with, you know, in a lab, but I am responsible for finding new investors and working with, with hospitals to work up new clinical programs. And so much of that can be done on Zoom or phone. I don't need to be away that often. When I am away, I try and make sure that one of our kids or a good friend will be there, you know, to look after Gillian, but it's it's usually quite problematic. And Julie, how much does Paul rely on you? <laughs> Probably a bit more now than in the past. I do nearly all the driving, but that's not a big issue. But Paul is absolutely an incurable optimist. And so Parkinson's has brought him a whole career because he never <laughs> stops banging on about it. <laughs> and has, and these are his words, inflicted his show on people all over the country. <laughs> um, has he inflicted on you first? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, he's quite loath to tell me anything because I might have an opinion. <laughs> Does he still look down his nose at you? Oh, yes. Well, that was the facial freezing, yes, years ago. But he never complains. I have never heard him complain. Tell us about the chocolate. <laughs> yes, he loves chocolate, so please send some in. Yes. But you hide it from me. Yes, that, that's, that's good. Thing. Yes, and then I can't remember where I've put it. <laughs> <laughs> so that he won't find it. But I'd say the hard thing is he has become more self-absorbed. Parkinson's is right there in the centre. And, and is that a problem, though? I mean, that he's... I mean, I think one of the things about this podcast, it's a good thing and a bad thing, that it makes you even more focused on your disease than you were before. Yes, he is very focused, yes. But How does that make you... It's what he does. And he, as I say, he's always 100% positive. But I do agree, Mark, if I can say that one of the things when this podcast started and this group started, I don't know whether everybody else feels the same. I, at the beginning, was a bit unsure because I thought, well, hang on a minute. We're trying quite hard not to think about Parkinson's all the time. <laughs> this is now taking over your entire life, yeah. apart from the day job. Is this a good thing? And I was not sure and maybe, if I'm honest, maybe I felt a bit, well, hang on, what's this gang you've got where you're all talking about your Parkinson's and I'm not in your gang? And actually, of course, I have now realised it's invaluable for Nicholas. I know how much 
he values it, but I don't know, maybe others didn't feel the same. I certainly wasn't sure at the beginning whether it was a good idea. Now, this is the difficult one. Joe, my darling, lovely wife. Why do you think I'm going to be difficult? <laughs> I don't know at all. Well, let's start with the easy one. What about the podcast and my relationship with the podcast? Well, I mean, it has taken over your life, but it's a good thing, really, because you retired and you found it difficult. You found it very difficult, and this came along. So it's actually given you a new purpose to life, and uh, you are very much immersed in it. I mean, sometimes... I feel like it's talk to the hand when you're there <laughs> communicating with your like fellow podcasters. <laughs> but haven't I always been like that at work? Yes, I've always described you with your work head on, but that was like most of the time, you, that's when you were at work. When you were at home, you were engaging. But now I'm at home the whole time, I'm not. Not so much with me, but I think it's a good thing for you. I mean, you know, and so therefore that's a good thing for our relationship. If you were a saddo sitting around the place that wouldn't be so great and what have been the most difficult things I suppose it's your voice isn't it your voice has gone it's very weak now and compared to how it was because you had a like a booming voice before and it was part of your identity very much so as a broadcaster so I felt quite sad for you losing that you know you seem quite lost about that but I mean what can you do you're going to start this voice training soon with the NHS and hopefully that will help you improve it you know aside from that I'm going a bit deaf so it doesn't work out tremendously when you're in the kitchen and Mark likes to really play music very loud and he's over the other side of the room and he says something to me and I'm over the other side it's like why do you think I can possibly hear you and when I repeat it for the fifth time I start trying to speak louder which you interpret as being aggressive. Well, it sounds it to me, you know, you stupid woman, why can't you understand me? Can um, Parkinson's be a bit boring after a while? I suppose I find it boring in the aspect that Mark's very slow at walking. We recently spent a very nice week in Cadiz City, the city of Cadiz, and you can meander around there quite easily. And he's just very slow at walking and you just have to... Be patient and kind of guide him through and you're crowds. In front, beckoning me on. I know sometimes I get, I think, oh no, I can't walk this slow. And then I go a bit of head and then I turn around and I go, come on, come on, come on. Like, you know, <laughs> having to guide you down across roads in case you trip and just be more aware of his increased vulnerability. Julie, does the, uh, the voice thing strike a note? With oh, you? yes. <laughs> we were talking earlier. I'm hard of hearing. I have been since I was 42. Hearing aids don't really help after about 30 years. And I did go to lip reading classes, but they were cancelled through lack no. of take up. So what more difficulties does that lead to? Just and I can't hear Paul. <laughs> I have literally had conversations where the person with Parkinson's has talked right into my ear and I still can't hear it. And I find it very difficult because uh, I was emailing Jeremy on one occasion and I had to read the email out to Julie and I started, Dear Paxo, and she said, you can't possibly say that. And I said, why not? And she said, well, you can't possibly call him Fatso. <laughs> <laughs> what help do you get from the NHS? Well, Nicholas has talked often and loudly about how brilliant Professor Chowdhury is, so he's you amazing. You get to see him four times a year. It's incredible. But actually, when I listened to your episode on Bedside Manor and the lack of provision generally, I just realised we we're incredibly lucky to have him. So I don't think we are remotely typical. 
but there is a lot of help for Nicholas. Having said which, there is no suggestion of any provision to help the partner, wife, spouse, whatever. As it happens, I don't need any help right now, but it's not as though part of this diagnosis was anybody saying, and what is the position of anyone, a family member who offers support? That was never offered to me. I don't know whether others had a different experience. Mike, have you had any advice on how to be the partner of a parking? I, I never have. I've been to a couple of conferences, particularly the World Parkinson's Congress overseas over the last six years, and both have had sessions on carers and how to help. I found them actually pretty um, unhelpful. They, uh, really? they've, never, no, they've always felt slightly patronising or just doesn't relate to the, the illness that Gillian has. But I read a vast amount on Parkinson's. I've had Google alerts on Parkinson's disease for a decade now, and I, I, I'm pretty aware of, of a lot of the issues that we're going to run into. So I, I'm, I've been able to, to work it out. Julie, Paul's very much big into um, meeting other Parkinson's people and having sessions with them and going along to the Oxford group. Do you meet other partners and does that help? Yes, and that's very useful. How does it help? I think you have somebody to talk to who's used to it, but doesn't have it themselves. Paul, you kindly sent me a list of questions. What do you think we should ask next? I suppose you could ask, what could we do to help you as our carers? I hate the word carers, by the way. But what could we do to help you? Well, I can only think of one thing in particular, is you could be more patient. Because, you, I mean, you have always had a tendency to be mercurial and a bit not patient. But if you could just be a bit more patient in terms of me trying to understand <laughs> understand you when you speak. Yeah, I've sort of realised that we haven't spoken about it as much as maybe we ought to. Well, I think we haven't spoken about it because I, I kind of think that I know you'll get worse. Hopefully you won't deteriorate very quickly, but I've kind of got it in a box over there that we'll deal with that when we get to it rather than letting it pervade our life together at the moment. And we're just... Um, living our lives together as best we can and enjoying life as much as we can. That's what I was going to ask. Uh, I think Liz touched on this, but how much do you think about where things are going? Julie, Paul is obviously talking about deep brain stimulation. Yes. Um, do you get involved in those discussions? Do you advise him or what? <laughs> that silence is very revealing, isn't it? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Yes, that's due in early November. Um, he has a very good team. It's what he wants. Do you not want it, Julie? Mm. Julie, it's been the best thing for me by such a long, long measure. It's just changed my life completely for the better. It really has. We've only known one person who had it, who was a lovely man, the brother of a good friend of ours, and he died four days after the operation. Technically, they said that it wasn't the operation because it wasn't immediate, but he did die, and he was 70, and he's the only person we knew who'd had DBS. My goodness, that's... So I've limited knowledge and therefore can't help but worry. That's very tough. Would you rather he didn't have it? He has to make his own decision. He never asked me what I thought, so I haven't said. <laughs> you know, you've got to make your own life choices, haven't you? Well, can I just say on that, I think that's quite an interesting point because I think we have a 
tricky path to tread. Those of us who don't have this condition, but live with it in the sense of living with someone who has it. And the fact is the decisions the person makes who's got the condition are also going to impact on us. One of the things that I'm very fortunate in is that Nicholas, every single aspect of his treatment we talk about, we discuss the changes to medication, proposed changes, possible side effects, we talk about it. I know there are lots of people out there that that doesn't happen and that the partner slash carer, whatever, is rather excluded from those issues. And actually, I think that must be incredibly hard because it's hard enough, frankly, when you're in the position I'm in, which is I'm as well-informed as he is, arguably more well-informed, because I read the leaflets, he doesn't bother, I read the leaflets, <laughs> and it's hard enough You must be the that. first person I've met who actually reads the I'm leaflets. I'm actually a lawyer who reads the small print, imagine. <laughs> it's hard, and I do know the detail. I think if you're being slightly closed out from it and decision-making, of course it's not our decision, but it impacts on us. All of these things do impact on us, and I think it's quite revealing today There's quite a lot of emotion around this table from those of us who are supportive of the person with Parkinson's and speaking only for myself, it's probably the first time I've allowed that emotion to even begin to surface because I feel like, what have you got to complain about? You haven't got it. So I think it's it's a difficult line we tread, is what I would say. Mike, Joe is talking about putting it in the box and I'm a great fan of the box, not, not looking where it goes. What about you? I do look in the box a lot because I read obsessively on the subject. But interestingly, I'm in I'm in the Paul Mayhew Archer optimist camp, and I think it's based on reason rather than some fictional idea in my head. We're lucky in London; we've got some extraordinarily global leading researchers in a, in a variety of fields, some of whom have been on the podcast. There is some incredibly exciting stuff coming through. Gillian had DBS four years ago. It's been utterly transformational. Our life before then was candidly very, very difficult. Gillian was in pain for many hours a day and it was it was just dreadful. So technology rescued Gillian four years ago. The DBS is holding up pretty well, perhaps losing its effect a little bit more than we'd, we'd thought, but we haven't had to in- increase the drug regime materially since the DBS, which is the big thing I was worried about. There are, there are quite a few therapies coming through. One or two have been talked about on the podcast, and I think when Gillian needs the next stage of help, there will be some very interesting ways to go forward. Liz, you spoke about the emotional side of it, and I just wonder, I mean, one of the most moving things I read on our Facebook page was somebody saying... My husband used to be my rock, and I've watched him crumble before my eyes. Does anybody feel that the balance in the relationship has changed or the dynamics of the relationship? Jo? Not not particularly. I suppose in terms of practical issues, like I do all the driving, but not emotionally, I'd say you're pretty well much the same as you were before. Which is not a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would say, no, I don't think it's changed in the sense that Nicholas is still Nicholas. You hear him on this podcast, you know what he's like. It's like living with an enormous Labrador. He's just full of energy, full of life, and that isn't changed. Oh, I, I, he said, I must ask about judgeitis. Oh, yeah, well, he gets quite a lot of that, but we try to control it. So he's not changed in that way. But again, I think we know there is a subtext to our life, which is this is, ha-ha, progressive, this condition, and it's going in one direction only. So we fortunately take the same view, which is, well, let's just get on and enjoy life. And we're very positive. 
But I think to that extent, there is an underlying theme in our relationship, unspoken most of the time, which is we know that, assuming Nicholas is fortunate enough to live for many years to come, it will look very different down the line, and we know that. And there's not much point talking about that day to day because we can't do anything about it, and we'll deal with it when we get there. But yes, there is that underlying shift, I suppose. Julie, has your relationship changed? Only in the sense that, as I say, Parkinson's does dominate our life. But then equally, I had, well, I went to 44 years of council meetings, if it was a, what's the expression, coterminous um, sentence. Anyway. Concurrent. Concurrent, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I was very involved in local politics for many years and now we're on a different path and that's fine. So you, you, were, you, you were a councillor, were you? Yes, on all three councils, but never all at once, because then you're to blame for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Has that made you an incurable optimist or the reverse? <laughs> I tend to, well, I, did I say earlier, you know, could you complain, Julie, you're so awfully good at it? <laughs> and Mike, what about you? I don't think so at all. No, um, it's it's not become an issue at all. It's just every day there might be a slightly new challenge, but we just adapt. Well, thanks. That was terrific. Of course, there's one person we haven't heard from, and that's Rory and his wife. Yeah, Diane is a very strong character. I, I'm just hearing about how people's relationship have changed. I think she's always been the strong half of the relationship, and she's got stronger. She comes from the north. She's got a robust attitude, and we hadn't talked about it much until this came along and so I recorded her first of all talking about when she first noticed something was wrong. I was much slower than you to realise there was anything wrong. You know, I think it had dawned on you long before that there might be something uh, seriously the matter. I remember us being on holiday that previous summer and you seemed to be dragging your heel and so I was kind of impatiently snapping at you to lift your feet up and walk properly. <laughs> Do you remember going to the hospital? It was January 2019 Yes, I do. It was uh, in the Warren of St Mary's and Paddington and there was a very unsympathetic doctor. I think I was most concerned about the impact on your state of mind rather than anything long term because you'd been down, you'd obviously worried about it and then the news had been broken to you in this rather terrible way. It's funny, I, I have been sort of mildly critical of the way it was broken to me, but you're, you're, you're quite strong about that. What do you mean? Well, the doctor was telling you something that was going to have serious implications for the rest of your life. She was just so matter-of-fact about it. And obviously the emotional, potential emotional impact didn't cross her mind at all. She was just, oh yeah, that's Parkinson's. And what did you think when you heard it was Parkinson's? Uh, not a lot immediately. I didn't know very much. It took quite a long time for the longer-term implications to sink in for me. And, of course, you'd already been through the ocular melanoma and long years of hospital appointments about that as well. So I suppose one of the things I thought was more bloody hospital appointments. (laughs) Yeah, I was the same, really. I I mean, we both remember the ocular melanoma and how terrified we both were about that. And this didn't seem quite as scary, did it? No, and I suppose it's not the big C word, and that's just inherently scary. But in that case, first of all, Moorfields was much better about the emotional impact and sent us straight to a lovely counsellor. But also we had thought then that might be fatal, and we were looking at you potentially dying because it was a cancer, is a cancer. You know, I I remember us going to a restaurant and sitting having an afternoon sherry and going, well, what music do you want for your funeral? (laughs) 
And this this felt different. So how did you see your role from then on to do with my Parkinson's? Much more focused on practical, really. I mean, I love you more than I can say, but I wouldn't make a very good emotional support dog, would I? <laughs> it's, you know, it's more pull yourself together and get on with things. Quite robust is your is your approach. <laughs> Do you know, I find that helpful. Well, I'm glad to hear it because I'm not going to change. <laughs> and what have you seen over the years? So it's what, it's four, four and a half years now. Have you noticed me changing? Well, one thing that's changed a lot is that is your insomnia, which used not to be a problem. And I do worry about whether you get enough sleep and what the effects will be. And obviously you shake a bit and you drag your foot a bit. And that's probably got slightly worse over time. But we're getting older and you'd be crumbling anyway. (laughs) How do you think I'm coping and how do you think you're coping? Uh, You're very good at not showing what you are worried about. We're both quite um, stiff upper lip reserved people, I suppose. So we don't sit and emote about it very much at all. I have thought a bit about what are the longer-term implications. One day we'd want to downsize from our house and we'd better get into a flat because stairs won't be so easy for you. And I have also thought we should both, as we are doing, just get on and do as much as we possibly can while we still have the opportunity to do so. So I've been travelling an awful lot. My career's going well. I've worked hard and... You know, I want that to carry on while I've got the opportunity for it to do so. And I'm quite busy too. Do you ever worry that whether I'm getting the right treatment or whether I'm going down the right path? I mean, I've had discussions about deep brain stimulation, which I'm very chary of. What's your your view? I think um, it's for you to evaluate as your condition changes. I mean, I'm not an expert, so there are conversations you and the doctor, the consultant, will need to have about treatment. I'm perfectly happy to see electrodes implanted in your brain at some stage. You know, we'll see if it's needed. Okay. So overall, how do you think it's going? (laughs) Uh, I think it's going okay. (laughs) And it'll be all the better when you can get the dog to take you out for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) The dog has sat watching us while we've been doing this interview. How is Sophie? Sophie is uh, the opposite of an emotional support dog. She is, I am her emotional support dog. <laughs> we, we don't often talk about it. That was one of the few times we've talked about it and I found it quite moving, actually. And I think that's one of the things that's emerged from this afternoon's session is that we don't really talk about it very much. Yeah. Do you feel that we don't talk about it enough? Yeah, I've been, um, I've been slightly taken aback by the explicitness of Liz's description of... Um, my what is technically called parasomnia. Parasomnia is too simplistic to call them nightmares, but parasomnia is described as the disorder, sleep disorders characterized by regular occurrence of abnormal movements, vocalizations, sleepwalking, talking in one's sleep, or night terrors, all of which she has described, but she's never described them as explicitly as she has today, and I'm slightly taken aback. All I can say is that I'm, Dr. Rosenweig is on the case, more medications are being prescribed, but I, I still can't help feeling terribly guilty for the fear that I'm meeting out to my wife. And uh, I know that I'm acting as an automaton and that I have no responsibility for this, but uh, it has been a very disp- disturbing experience to hear her speak so um, candidly about it. It really brought it home to It really has brought it home to me, yeah. Because I think that aside, I'm relatively unimpaired. I would say the Professor Chowdhury has got a medication regime for me which means that I at the 
tremor has largely subsided. I do feel relatively unimpaired, and so it's it's what happens when I'm asleep that is the principal impairment that I suffer from. I think the way in which our lives have changed, or we have changed our lives since the diagnosis, is that we have, to use Gillian's tremendous expression, more carpate the DM ever since the diagnosis. We tried to enjoy life as existentially as we can. Would you agree with that, Liz? Yes, but what I was going to say is that for us, we're very fortunate because we're still at a stage where it doesn't impair your life significantly. What I have found incredibly encouraging listening to this podcast, listening to Gillian over previous episodes, talking about her life, being very clear about the challenges physically and I'm sure emotionally. But what's apparent is that even down the line of Parkinson's, there is a life to be lived and to be lived fully. And that, for me, has been incredibly moving and encouraging. So thank you to Gillian and, of course, to Mike. Well, it's interesting you say that because people say often to us that you're very brave to react the way you react. But it's not bravery, it's selfishness. It's pure selfishness. If I sit in a room going, oh, woe is me, this is terrible, terrible, and Mike does that and the children do that too and we're all depressed, it really doesn't help anyone at all. So I feel a lot better thinking, ooh, let's try and go to the theatre or let's you know, see whether we could nip to somewhere. We do try to do these things, partly so that we've got a memory bank, if you like, to fall back on when things get really tough, but partly just because it's fun and great and we can. But we are very lucky, obviously, in that we have the funds. We're incredibly lucky that Mike has the flexibility to make the calls wherever he is in the world. And he couldn't have done that if he still had his city job that he had originally. Do I have a message there? I don't know. If I did, I suppose it would be that for us, we've had to adapt in such a way that you can't ignore the illness. I mean, it just won't go away. But we've adapted our life to live it as well as we possibly can, given that the Parkinson's is here. I think there's a message there, not just for people with Parkinson's, but anybody who's getting older, really, to seize the day to encourage people to... Enjoy life as much as possible. Yes, looking into the future. Uh, when I made my documentary a few years ago, Parkinson's, The Funny Side, still available on YouTube and iPlayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but there, there, are, there are a couple of moments. There's one where Julia is asked to think about the future and she sort of s- starts to cry. Oh, and after the producer had gone, she said, obviously they'll edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I can absolutely guarantee that will be the one big thing they will not edit out. <laughs> And the other one was uh, doing the d- a dance sequence. We were doing dancing and the camera slowed right down. And there's just a moment where a very elderly couple, he has quite advanced Parkinson's and dementia. And his wife gives him a look of such absolute adoration and love that it just moves me to tears every time I see it. And I like to think that that's how we will be when eventually, if we need to be. The dilemma we parkies face is that we are all impaled on the horns of uncertainty. If we knew that it was going to progress at a predictable rate and that we would end up in a certain place, you could make a plan for it. But you don't. You might be relatively unimpaired until the very end, or it might be go disastrously worse very quickly. You just don't know. And so that is why I think Gillian's philosophy is so apt, is that one has to live the existential life and carpe the DM because you just don't know what's around the corner. I mean, that is true, but I mean, it, it's also true for everybody. You don't know where it's going to end up. You don't know where your life's going to go. That is, I think <laughs> life is more predictable if you don't have Parkinson's. But also, there may be a bus around the corner, mightn't there? there? You know, 
So should you live your life as though that bus is about to come any minute? I don't know. And also, can I say that one of the things that I am very conscious of is that when we're all doing the Carpe Diem and we're very best foot forward, which we do and we do all the time, I do always say to Nicholas as well, if there comes a point, which there may do with this condition, where you feel just flattened by it and low, because let's face it, depression can be a feature of this condition, you must never feel you have to hide that from me. If that's what you feel, that's what you feel. And we address those symptoms just as we address physical ones. And I think sometimes one has to remember, one can't just say, well, you've got to make the best of it. Sometimes for some people, you just can't. And probably there are people around this table who at some point or another have experienced depression as part of their Parkinson's. And with the best will in the world, you can't do much about that just through saying, well, let's seize the day. So right now that's not an issue for us. But if it becomes one, I would like to think Nicholas would admit it and say, actually, I'm feeling pretty low. And that ought to be something he can share with me. But it's exactly at that point that you really need the other person. So it's a different sort of a... You're not carpeing the DM in the sense that you're, you know, going out and having a great time, but you're maximising what you've got that's good and, I suppose, minimising what you've got that's bad because you're being frank about it. I do have those black moments. I really do. And often they do come up four in the morning and I do think, gosh, shall I wake Mike up? And I, poor Mike, I do wake him up. And he recognises that they're there and is amazingly supportive. I don't know how you do it, actually. What I'm impressed about is that you, you wake up because I, uh, <laughs> I am incredibly careful about trying not to wake my wife um, and sort of creep out at four in the morning and go and sit in her study next door <laughs> because I know that she needs her sleep a lot more than I need mine. I've invested in a blackout mask so Jenny can switch on the damn light and write her poetry or whatever she does and I'll, I'll nod off and then she knows how to wake me up when she uh, I'm actually quite a light sleeper so it doesn't take much but I tend to go back to sleep if I'm, I'm not being asked to listen to the poetry or actually the poetry is often the best way of getting back to sleep. <laughs> the question of whether it's spotted or not. Mm. I do agree with Liz though that one has to have a policy of maximum honesty and not keep one's fears to oneself. I think that is obviously going to be intrinsically harmful if you do that. So maximum honesty, although that does not involve listening to your stories about your sex life, if you don't mind. Um, but I, I, I think you've, as usual, as always, you put your finger on it again, Liz. Thanks, everybody. That was hugely interesting and rather moving. You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Catherine jones and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lukat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at MoversAnd6, that's Movers and the number 6. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>